0: Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, The Doctrine of Christ, Part 12. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. We've been thinking about various New Testament motifs for the atonement wrought by Jesus. We've looked at the motif of sacrifice, of the suffering servant of the Lord, and now we want to wrap up our consideration this morning of divine justice. According to Paul, God's righteousness is given to all who believe in Jesus. In Romans chapter 4, Paul goes on to explain that this gift is accorded by means of what he calls reckoning in the sense in which a merchant would settle his accounts. Now, although it's sometimes said that justification involves merely an acquittal, uh, a verdict of not guilty, and not a positive ascription of righteousness to us, nothing in the text, I think, warrants diluting the righteousness of God, which is reckoned to us. The righteousness of God, as we have seen, is a rich um, property. Not just the bare absence of guilt. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 again, verses 3 to 6. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 3 to 6. Reading from verse 4 If any other man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says he was blameless with respect to righteousness under the law. But then he goes on to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Here I think it's evident that the righteousness from God that Is reckoned to us is more than just a mere verdict of uh, acquittal, uh, of not guilty. It is a positive righteousness that makes the righteousness that Paul had under the law look like dung by comparison. So at least at face value it seems that God's righteousness in all of its full moral value is reckoned to believers. And I think this is clearly expressed in 2 Corinthians five and verse twenty-one. 2 Corinthians five, twenty-one. Paul says, "For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God." There's no warrant for diluting this statement uh, on Paul's part. Our sin. Is credited or reckoned to Christ's account, and God's righteousness is in turn credited or reckoned to our account. Let's go on then to the next New Testament motif connected with atonement, and that is representation. Representation. The promise of God's righteousness is given to those who are in Christ. And this brings us to yet another facet of the New Testament doctrine of the atonement, which is Christ as our representative. Now, already in certain of the Old Testament sacrifices, the idea of representation plays a role. While the private sacrifices were offered by worshipers on behalf of themselves, When it came to the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the access to the tabernacle was permitted only to the high priest alone, and he therefore had to act as the people's representative before God. He would bring the sacrifice for them, and he would confess their sins over the scapegoat before it was driven out into wilderness. So in the Yom Kippur sacrifices and rituals we already see this element of representation present. In the New Testament Paul characterizes Christ as our representative before God. and He does this in two ways, I think. First, there is the corporate solidarity of all of mankind with Christ. Christ is the antitype or the correlate of Adam, the first man who represents all men. Paul says in Romans five, verses eighteen to nineteen, Romans five, eighteen to nineteen, as one man's trespass, that is Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. So, one man's act of righteousness, that's Christ, leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now, notice in this capacity, Christ's atoning sacrifice. Is conceived as universal in its scope. It is for all men, as Paul says. The representative nature of Christ's um, death becomes clear in Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5.14. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes, We are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Christ did not simply die in my place. He was not simply a substitute for me. Rather, he was my representative before God. and So what my representative did, I did. Christ's death was representatively our death so that in Christ we die to sin we are crucified with Christ and i think this is the import of the words of the author of hebrews in hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 he says by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone hebrews 2:9 by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone So, Christ is the representative on behalf of all people before God in dying in their place. But, second, there is the more particular union of believers with Christ, whereby they become the beneficiaries of his atoning death. And this is described in Romans chapter 6. Verses 3 to 11, Romans 6, 3 to 11. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk. In newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Even though Paul held that Christ was the representative of all mankind before God and had died on behalf of all mankind, Paul was no universalist. He believed that one had to receive uh, and appropriate the benefits of Christ's atoning death in order to be the beneficiary of it in Romans chapter 5 and verse 17 Romans 5:17 Paul says that those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ Romans 5:17 Yes Christ has died for all men but it is those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness who will reign in life. Now, the way in which we appropriate the benefits of Christ's atoning death, says Paul in Romans 6, is by faith, culminating in baptism, whereby we identify with his death and resurrection. So, what Romans 6 is really about is how we are um, joined with Christ through a faith union with him as Christians. Paul says in Romans 6.3 all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. And therefore, he says in verse 8, we have died with Christ. We are crucified with him. Verse 6 – Similarly, he says, by his resurrection, we have been brought from death to life. Verse 13. Because of our union with him, his death and resurrection are our death and resurrection as well. God appointed Christ to be our human representative, but the way in which we benefit from his atoning death is Uh, only insofar as we are in Christ. And we are in Christ through faith and baptism. By faith and baptism we identify with Christ's death and resurrection. In effect, it is through faith and baptism that we accept his representation of us. Those who reject him reject his representation of them, and so are not united with him. They are not in Christ. So I think that Paul's doctrine of the atonement has a very strong representational uh, aspect to it. Like Adam, Christ represents every human being before God, and he dies for that person. But In addition to this, those who by faith receive God's righteousness and forgiveness thereby become the actual beneficiaries of Christ's death and resurrection by identifying themselves with Christ, by being in Christ through their faith union with him. Any comment or discussion then of those two ways in which uh, Christ acts representationally on our behalf before God. Yes, Bruce. Well, just to clarify, I, I think the baptism it's talking about in, in Romans 6 is is spiritual, not water baptism. Uh, I think other verses yeah. would be would strongly indicate that water baptism doesn't do anything. Well, we'll talk about that more when we get to the doctrine of the church and talk about sacraments and ordinances, however you view them, of the Last Supper and baptism. I don't think, Bruce, personally that when you read Romans 6 there's anything to suggest that Paul is not talking about water baptism. He doesn't qualify it in any way. He seems to be talking about the act of being buried with Christ under the water and then being raised up again. That seems to be the symbolism. Now I think what you're reacting against probably is thinking of this act of baptism as a sort of magical rite that is somehow infused with some sort of power that just by going through the rite you become a beneficiary of it and that's why I emphasize that it is faith and baptism it it is the faith that is the operative means of Um, Christ's righteousness being reckoned to us. But I would say that water baptism is the external expression of that inner faith and that therefore Paul can talk about the importance of baptism in this way because he sees it as a public expression of one's identifying with Christ and it has to be done through faith, or it is an empty and meaningless right. I, I think that's true. Um, but I don't see any reason to think that he's not talking about water baptism here um, as the full expression of identifi- identification with Christ. Yes, Dennis? The crucifixion brings to my mind some questions about the Trinity and the relationship between the members of the Trinity. Uh, would it be correct to say that the Father and Spirit also experienced the crucifixion in some sense, or was it you the unique experience of one s- center of consciousness mm-hmm. of the Trinity, as you've described well, it? Well, I think Dennis, you're qu- quite right in saying that they're all involved. This is an act of God, but they do seem to play different roles. Only the Son has a human nature which is actually crucified. And um, undergoes that imputation of sin that we talked about and the punishment for sin. The Father's role in the crucifixion, it seems to me, would be to administer justice, to punish Christ for our sins, or at least to inflict upon him the suffering that would have been our punishment uh, had it been given to us instead. So, it seems to me that the actual experience of being crucified, of being punished, of being the sin-bearer is unique to the second person alone. The Father the Spirit are, are not the sin-bearers. Over and over again the New Testament says he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and that couldn't be said of the Father or the Spirit. And what I'm trying to emphasize in this section is that this isn't just a substitutional suffering, it's a representational suffering. And that adds an additional dimension to it. In punishing Christ for my sins, I am punished, but I am punished in my representative, in my proxy. He bears it for me. And so I am representationally punished for my sin. In Christ and so we do die in Christ insofar as we identify with him and appropriate the benefits of his death yes Steve but when we die we die without the sting of death because we have hoped and trusted in what he did and that is the new connection that you have of his spirit again when we were born again yes. and that's the lively hope because we have to be changed to be his his hopes and desires I think that that is true, and that it is precisely because I don't die on my own for my sin. God doesn't inflict that punishment on me. He inflicts it on my representative. And so it is in my representative that I die to sin, and this is as you say, one that then gives hope, because it it gives acquittal, uh, as well as this positive, I think, ascription of righteousness to me. Someone else have a further comment? Yes, Marcus. What's exactly the difference between the pre- representational and substitutional? Say, say again. The difference between representational and substitutional. I, what's the distinction there? Okay. When someone is a substitute, that person acts in the place of the other person. Uh, think of a pitch hitter in baseball. The pinch hitter comes into the lineup and bats in the place of the other hitter. But he doesn't in any way represent that hitter. Uh, His performance at the plate will not affect the batting average of the person that he replaces. In no sense is he a representative of that batter that he substitutes for. He's simply a substitute. He's simply someone who hits in the place of that other person. But that baseball player Will also have a, an agent. And this agent represents him in negotiations with the team uh, in order to get a good salary, to get benefits, and so forth. And so this agent is not a substitute for the player, he's the player's representative who uh, argues on behalf of and acts on behalf of the. Player. And so I think you can see there a a strong distinction between being just a substitute or being a representative. And these functions can be combined where a person is both a representative and a substitute. And the example I like is a proxy at a shareholders meeting. When you sign a proxy form that someone can uh, act on your behalf at the shareholders meeting, they will vote instead of you, they, they, they attend the meeting, you don't, they're there as your substitute, but they're also acting on your behalf. Their vote is your vote. So if you, if you were asked, did you vote at the shareholders' meeting? Yes, I did vote through my proxy or through my representative. So I did vote, even though I wasn't there, through my representative. And that's the idea here. Of Christ, it's not just that Christ was punished instead of me, but rather He was my representative, so that in Him I am punished. Um, and and so this representational aspect of Christ's death is important to grasp, uh, lest we think that Christ was just a mere substitute, like that pinch hitter, Taiwan. Is it that? The acceptance, or you call it spiritual identification, that activates the representation. That activates it, did you say? Yes. Yes, I would prefer to say that appropriates it. And that's why there can be people Mm -hmm. on behalf of whom Christ has died Mm -hmm. who yet do not have salvation Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. they haven't appropriated it Mm -hmm. personally through faith. And baptism. Or similarly, consider someone who is elect. This person is part of those that God knows will receive his grace and go to heaven. But prior to his conversion, Mm -hmm. that person Mm -hmm. hasn't appropriated Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the benefits of Christ's death. And so Paul can say in Ephesians, we were, like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. Mm He says this of the elect Ephesians, that prior to their conversion they were just like everybody else, they were children of wrath. So even the elect, in order to be the the beneficiaries of Christ's death, need to do something to appropriate it. And the way Paul says you appropriate it is by faith. Mm -hmm. By faith, expressed in baptism, you identify with Christ's atoning death on your behalf, and this righteous, the, then you, your sins are forgiven and this righteousness of God is imputed or reckoned to you. Ben? Would Calvinists throw out both of these points, the corporate and both the individual? Because in the corporate, he represents all men, but Calvinists believe he doesn't represent all men, only the elect, right? And then in the secondarily, we don't appropriate it, he actually under Calvinist belief that he, uh-huh. he didn't die for everyone. He only died for a certain group of people. It, it, so I was just curious about how... Okay, we will talk more about this when we come to assessing a theory of the atonement, but Ben is quite right in drawing our attention to a distinctive of Reformed or Calvinistic theology. They would reject the first point, that point that Christ died for all men. Because they would say if he died for all men, then all should be saved. Uh, their punishment has been paid. They, uh, everyone should be saved. So they would reject that first point, but they would affirm, the second one, that through our faith union with Christ, we are made the beneficiaries of Christ's atoning death. And they would say that in fact Christ only died for the elect. It is only those who are in faith union with Christ for whom he died. And this gets the reformed thinker, I think, into a kind of vicious circularity because in order to be a beneficiary of Christ's death, you have to be in union with Christ. But in order to be in union with Christ, you need to have your sins forgiven and be justified. and It gets into a kind of vicious circularity, I think, that will unfold later on. But I think that both of these aspects are taught in Paul. However we make sense of them, Romans 5 clearly seems to think that Adam and Christ are correlated with each other. And just as Adam's sin leads to condemnation for everyone, Christ's death uh, is sufficient for acquittal for everyone. He died for everyone. But then in Romans 6 he seems to emphasize that you've got to appropriate this in order to become a beneficiary of what Christ has done on your behalf. And even the elect, as I just said to Taiwan, need to appropriate this because prior to their appropriation, prior to their conversion, they are also children of wrath and under God's condemnation. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our uh, time today. What we will do next time is look at one final New Testament motif concerning the atonement, and that will be the motif of redemption, that Christ's death is a ransom um, that redeems us from sin. Let's close in with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that insofar as we are in Christ, we are the full beneficiaries of his death. And we thank you, Lord, not only for the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing from guilt that we have in him, but even more for that positive righteousness of God that is reckoned to us insofar as we are in Christ. Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.